0: Right. early in the first century A.D., in a relatively insignificant region of the vast Roman Empire, yet another subversive criminal was hung on a cross and crucified. Like the many who had come before him and the many who would come after, the empire crucified Jesus of Nazareth in a way of proving a point. Basically, anything but total allegiance to the Roman Empire is subversion, and subversion won't be tolerated. Now, the strange thing is that out of the thousands of people who are crucified as rebels, the largest religion in the world today, for some reason, worships this guy, Jesus. How did that happen? When Jesus was crucified, almost all of his disciples had scattered and abandoned him. There at the foot of the cross was John and a couple of the women, Mary, some friends, But for the most part, his disciples were leaderless and scattered and depressed and grieving. How is it then that in 2019, roughly 6,800 miles away, speaking a language that hadn't even been in in existence at the time Jesus spoke, how is it that we've gathered here to worship Jesus? We haven't gathered here to worship the thieves on the cross on either side of him. We don't worship the Roman emperor. We don't worship any of the gods or goddesses in the pantheon of the Roman world that are now relegated to the the books of mythology. We're not here to worship other would-be messiahs who also gave their lives, willingly or not, (laughs) on the cross. And we haven't even gathered to worship Moses or David or John the Baptist or Peter or St. Paul or, or Mary. It's weird. It would be, anyway, if it weren't for a few important facts. Of all the great and not-so-great religious leaders of history, only Jesus was present at the creation of the universe. That's a pretty big deal. And it is said only of Jesus that all things were created through him and for him. Only Jesus exists in perfect harmony with the Father and the, the Holy Spirit. And as God the Son, Jesus became human so that he could atone for our sin, so that he could offer us a way to be remade in his image that we're broken in right now. None of the people who were crucified by the Romans ever rose from the grave, not even Moses or David or John the Baptist or Elijah, only Jesus. And when he rose from the grave, the power for this new life was released on him and in him. His body became the prototype of what our resurrection will be like. And he visited his distressed disciples who had scattered him, and and, and many of them who had uh, turned their back on him, namely Peter, who denied him three times. And he forgives them, and he brings them back into community. And one day, Jesus' disciples were gathered, and they were... And, hey, Jesus, when is the kingdom of heaven coming in its full glory? And Jesus says, don't obsess about the timing, but I want you to wait in Jerusalem for power from on high to come upon you. And when that happens, you will be my witnesses. I will make you my witnesses. Well, then Jesus ascends into heaven, which is kind of a bible way of saying that he entered into the realm of God. And that he is above all things, that he is in power over all of time and history. And so the disciples wait, about 120 of them, and you know the story. They're in Jerusalem, Pentecost comes, and the power that Jesus had promised is poured out on them. And from that event, this whole movement begins based on devotion to one person, Jesus People begin to put their faith in Jesus and they get baptized and they receive the Holy Spirit, this power from on high. And they formed a community centered on Jesus, rooted in the scriptures, rooted also in the story of Israel. They're empowered by the Spirit, bearing witness through this radical new way of living where they're sharing with each other. They're mingling across culture and and across um, social spectrum. And it's, it's with this backdrop that we find ourselves in Acts chapter 3 this evening. The focus of the story has narrowed from this massive movement to three people. Peter and John and a beggar who is crippled from birth. The man with the crippled feet had been begging outside the gate of the temple pretty much every day. And one day, Peter and John are heading into the temple to pray, and they have this amazing encounter, Peter Looks the man in the eyes and then commands that the man look him in the eye. And they have this humanizing moment. You know, oftentimes we we suffer from what's called compassion fatigue. Our television screens are plastered with starving people all around the world. If we walk down certain parts of downtown, there's always people there begging. And if you're not careful, you learn to just look past. Compassion fatigue, you can't help them all, so it's almost like we put up this shield. And so Peter breaks through the compassion fatigue, and he looks into this man's eyes, humanizes him at that moment. He's no longer just a beggar, just a person wanting something. Peter's no longer just someone who can give him money, but it's a human-to-human connection. And he commands the man in the name of Jesus the Nazarene to get up and walk. And this man, who had never walked a day in his life, says the Scriptures, is not only healed, but he starts leaping with joy. Now, as you would imagine, such a miracle taking place in a public setting like that at the hour, the three o'clock hour of prayer when you've got all these people coming into the temple, it's going to get get some attention, isn't it? The crowds are going to notice. And that's exactly where we pick up the story in Acts chapter three, uh, verses 11 through 16. Would you stand with me as we read that text? Speaking of the guy who was healed, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them to the so called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you now see. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Lord, once again, we thank you for your living word. Not just a history lesson or a story to inform our minds, but an invitation to deeper faith in you, the Lord, who can make a man whole, who can make a woman whole, who can deliver us. I pray, Holy Spirit, by your power and ministry, as we, as we look deeper into this story, would you draw our hearts deeper into yours? Would you give us the gift of deeper faith? Thank you. Amen. You may be seated. So here's the scene. This man who has been crippled from birth who people had known simply as the beggar who was always outside the steps by the beautiful gate of the temple, this guy is now up and dancing and leaping with joy. So either this is like the longest long con ever because he was there for a long time, like it says his whole life, or something supernatural had just taken place in their midst. People were crowding all around in amazement as you would if you saw something like that. But the text implies that the people, they weren't just amazed that the man was healed. They were also amazed with Peter and John, as if, somehow, Peter and John were special guys. Now, why would they think that? In the ancient world, there were different superstitions about healings and miracles, and three of the most common in this time and in this place were magic, the divine person or divine people walking among us, or super pious people who could do supernatural things. So those are the three main reasons or superstitions that people thought could make a healing. With magic, people thought that skilled practitioners could manipulate the spiritual and the physical realms. One of the most important skills of the magician was knowing the proper spell and even more importantly, well, just as important as the proper spell, the proper pronunciation of the spell. You had to have that down. So a year ago or so, Stella was really into uh, copying the voice of Hermione Granger in the Harry Potter movies. She, she really has, you should have her do that accent. She can do it really well. Anyway, there's a scene in one of the movies where they're in their class and uh, Ron Weasley is trying to do the spell Wingardium Leviosa, right, to make, the, to make the little feather lift off the table. And he's just, he can't do it. He's saying it all wrong. And his know-it-all friend Hermione comes over and says, it's not Leviosa, It's Levio, you know, it's it's not Leviosa, it's Leviosa, and then she does it and it's perfect. It's just, he had the words right, but it's the pronunciation. Again, Stella can do it way better. But magicians in the ancient world were especially drawn to powerful names. And so perhaps the people thought that Peter and John could do miracles through the proper pronunciation of Jesus the Nazarene. Another popular superstition was that divine people walked among commoners and could use their powers to do miracles. So like in Greek and Roman mythology, the gods and goddesses would sometimes disguise themselves as human beings and walk around, and they could do special stuff and healings and perform miracles. In fact, there's a story later on in the book of Acts where Paul is doing some some healing, and the people there, they're, they're Gentiles. They think, This is Zeus among us, and and Apollos is among us, and 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 I think it's Paul and Barnabas, and they they both say, no, no, we're not, we're not gods, we're just guys, we're just like you. It's Jesus who gives us this power. Right? Now, Orthodox Jewish people, the types that would be praying at the temple, knew better than to mess around with magic. That was strictly forbidden in Scripture. And they were monotheistic. So they probably didn't think Peter and John were gods or goddesses. They probably thought, if anything, they were angels. But far more likely, they suspected it was the special piety of these men or the holiness of John and Peter that allowed them to do this miraculous deed. After all, sometimes in Scripture, God would do amazing things, wouldn't he? Through people like Moses and Elijah and Elisha, all men remembered for their piety and their humility. But Peter has none of that. He won't allow them to entertain those types of thoughts, and he takes the opportunity to preach, and here's why. Peter preaches because works of wonder, think of of a work of wonder. Think of even the most amazing sunrise or sunset you've ever seen, or the best powder day if you're a skier or a snowboarder, or just something beautiful or amazing, the birth of a child, whatever it is. If that is unconnected from the gospel, odd happening, spectacular things, what they they either can't be explained or human beings we we fill in our own ideas, our own explanations. So, for example. Um, People today think that aliens are always visiting our planet whenever something spectacular happens, right? It has to be an alien because it couldn't be anything else. Like, we can't explain it. Aliens did it, right? And in this time, it it could have been a, a visit from a divine person or magic or the special piety of Peter and John. But good preaching seeks to connect the acts of God with God himself. And in this case, Peter wants these people to know It wasn't our piety that caused this man to be healed. And it's not because we're divine beings. And it's not because of the magic words, Jesus the Nazarene. It's because of Jesus himself. He's the one who healed this man. The crowds were astonished, but Peter thinks that they should have known better. After all, this is the kind of stuff that Jesus was doing all the time in his earthly ministry. And so Peter takes the time to root this whole scene in scripture. He's talking to Israelites. What is the most foundational story in the history of Israelites? Danielle read from the book earlier. The Exodus. The Exodus. That was the event when God took this people out of captivity and made them a real people. The Jewish people, of course, were enslaved in Egypt, forced into lives of hard labor, and then in, in Exodus chapter three, you get this out of the blue miraculous event. Moses is just out shepherding his flock. Remember at this time, Moses who was saved uh, by, by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the, in the temple uh, of the Pharaoh. He then was an attempted murderer, or actually he did murder someone. And then he had to escape into the wilderness and he marries Zipporah whose dad is a pagan priest. And so now he's just a guy lucky to be alive, out shepherding animals. Like, he's, he's nobody on the scene of anybody who's religious and pious and special. He's just out there doing his thing. He sees this bush that's burning, but it's not burning up. Now, if there was no explanation for a bush that's burning but not burning up, it's a magic bush. It's a sign from the gods. It's aliens. It's some new form of chemistry. We fill in the blanks, don't we? And so Yahweh, God, gives an explanation. And he says, I am the God, your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This isn't some freak, rare phenomenon. This is an act of God. And it's linked to these relational covenants I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It means that this event, this burning bush thing, what is about to happen, what I'm going to tell you, is connected to the larger story. In the same way, now here's the connection, because Peter uses these words, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. You're a Jewish person, you're at the temple worshiping, what are you going to think of? Exodus 3. Now here's why. In the same way, Peter's sermon links the healing of the crippled man at the gate of the temple with the story of Exodus. It's part of a bigger story. He links the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with the God who raised Jesus from the dead, who sent the Spirit, who healed the man outside the temple so that the man could be healed and what? Released from his bondage, just like the Exodus released people from their bondage. In the story of the burning bush, the sign is both personal, God chooses a man, who was really a nobody, who was on the margins of society. We would never have heard of Moses had it not been for this event. He's just a shepherd guy, right? So that's the personal part of it, but it's also universal, the burning bush, right? God points to a new reality, to an exodus from slavery for a whole people. Now, in the same way, The movement of God in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit with this crippled man is both personal, God heals an individual man who is on the margins of society, not accepted, he was outside the temple, couldn't get in the temple because of his condition. It's personal, but it's also universal. God's sign in healing the crippled man points to a new reality, a new exodus from slavery to sin and death, and it points to Jesus being the center of all that action. Now, the people are astonished that the guy they saw begging every day at the temple was now healed and leaping with joy. But Peter is saying what you ought to be astonished about is that Jesus is the one who healed this man. Jesus, the same one you wanted crucified. Jesus, the same one you traded Barabbas for and you saw him die. It's kind of cliche, but there's a saying at least in churchy circles, that if you have to go to Sunday school, <laughs> if you're a kid, you get to go to Sunday school, that the answer to most Sunday school questions is Jesus. Right? Probably statistically speaking, since we talk a lot about Jesus in Sunday school, that's probably true. But there's a reason for that. He like really is the point of life. He's the giver of life. He's the fullest expression of God. The Savior, the Sovereign King, the Messiah. He is the answer. In his sermon, Peter mentions three titles for Jesus that shed light on his true identity. And he wants the crowds here to be astonished about Jesus healing this crippled man because they want, he wants them to be astonished about who Jesus is. And the first title Peter references is that of a servant. He says in verse 13, if you're following along, That the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. What does that mean? Why would he say that? All of our theology that comes later on in the New Testament, and then especially in the creeds, talks about the Trinity, talks about Jesus being co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Why would Peter call him a servant. Does Peter not know? Maybe his theology is not quite there yet, but then like, what does that mean that the Bible's wrong about this, okay? What is going on? I think Peter does this to make a point. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, spoke through the prophet Isaiah about a servant who would suffer on behalf of all the people. This one servant would take everything that Israel was supposed to be and do as a nation, and this one servant would accomplish all of that vocation. But there's a twist, this weird thing in Isaiah that that people hadn't been able to understand, and that is that this servant would also suffer and die for crimes he didn't commit. He'd be crushed even though he was innocent. He would die in the place of the guilty, even though he was obedient. See, up until this point in history, Peter preaching on this text, the servant in Isaiah had been a mystery. Like, people guessed at who he might be or who he would be someday, but nobody could figure it out. There was no definitive answer. The servant in Isaiah's servant songs was kind of the cipher, this weird, unexplained mystery. And what Peter is saying is that the innocent man you turned over to Pilate is the innocent servant of God. Jesus is the sacrificial servant, who's also the savior of the world. So Peter's rhetoric is intended to say that the man who was healed in the power of Jesus' name is a sign. Just like the burning bush was a sign pointing to something more, the healing of this man was a sign pointing to something more. And it was pointing to the fact that Jesus is the exalted servant of God. He's the point of the healing. Then Peter uses a second term to describe Jesus, and it's found in verse 14, Acts 3 14. He says, You disowned the holy and righteous one. It's not out of the ordinary to describe people, especially people in the Bible, by their pious attributes. Noah is known to be a righteous man. Abraham is known for his faith. Moses is known as the most humble man who ever lived. David for his passionate heart and Mary for her obedience. These are just some examples. Holy and righteous. That's how Peter describes Jesus. Now, Jesus was definitely those things and a lot more. He embodied those attributes of holiness and righteousness. But more significantly, the term together, holy and righteous, was a phrase used by Isaiah, again, to describe Yahweh, God himself. So when Peter says to the crowds, you disowned the holy and righteous one, he's saying two things at the same time. The first is, you disowned the God whose honor you thought you were protecting by crucifying Jesus. And I'm also saying in that same sentence that Jesus then is divine. That he is the Yahweh that you thought you were protecting. He's the holy and righteous one. So the suffering servant was Yahweh himself, the suffering God. You thought a healing was astonishing. What's astonishing? What should amaze the crowd is the fact that the healing is a sign that points to Jesus who became a man and suffered for our salvation. Right? Then Peter rolls into his third term for Jesus. And let me just give you the context. It's in Acts 3, 14 and 15. It says, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. To put to death the prince of life. This is so good. I wish we just had more time, but I'm not gonna. I'm not. No rabbit trails. No rabbit trails. Maybe small group on Wednesday if you're in my Bible study. Rabbit trail. Okay. So maybe you recall the story of the crucifixion. Pilate, the Roman governor, puts Jesus on trial because religious leaders had accused him of being this kind of adversary of Caesar, like like a rival king, and so Pilate. Find Jesus innocent of those charges. But the people were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now, Pilate was a horrible man. Like non-biblical historians write about the horrible things that he did. And later on, Pilate would get fired from his job because he's such a jerk. But what he really cared about in this scene is his political ambitions. He wasn't interested in justice. He was interested in career advancement. So here's what he could do. He could release Jesus, which was the right thing to do. And remember, for all of Rome's, uh, you know, failures, Roman Empire was a pretty horrible place for like most people in it. It's still like they were really big on justice. And so this was a case where like by Roman law, Jesus should have been let go. And by Roman senators and and the emperor should have said, Pilate, that would be a good thing for you to let this man go. That would be the just thing to do. So he could let Jesus go, get props from the emperor, and tick off the religious leaders who he didn't like anyway. So that was a a win. He could do that. Or he could crucify him and please the crowds, which might prevent a riot, and riots riots would not look good on his resume. Okay, So either way, could be a win, could be a loss. But what if Pilate didn't have to choose? What if he could wash his hands of the whole thing? And that's what he does. He says, hey, it's the eve of the Passover, and there's this tradition. I'll let someone go. You guys choose who it is. You could either have Jesus, who's innocent, king of the Jews, or you could have Barabbas. And Barabbas was a Jewish man who was convicted of what we would call today terrorism. He was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist who killed people. Um, To break free from Rome. So you've got these two people. And the crowds choose. Barabbas set him free. Crucify Jesus. Okay. Now Peter calls Jesus the Prince of Life. You see the irony. The people have chosen a murderer. And crucified the Prince of Life. The Prince of Life. Prince archigos in Greek can mean ruler or head of, but it also carries this sense of originator or author. So you might say the originator of life or the author of life. Peter is saying that it is from Jesus that all life comes out of. All things were created through him. It is for him that all things came into being. See, the crowds had thought that they were protecting God's honor by crucifying Jesus because they didn't believe he was from God. But Peter's saying, listen, look, the crippled man was just healed in Jesus' name. He is a living sign. Like, you knew this guy... Every day was on the steps. You know him. You know he never walked before, and now he's walking and jumping all around you. Pay attention. This is a sign because dead people don't heal crippled people, and Jesus healed this guy. Jesus is alive. He's risen, and we're witnesses, you and I, crowds, to this healing, and therefore, we're witnesses to the resurrection. Okay, now think back to Acts chapter 1 if you've been following the series. Wait in Jerusalem for power from on high to come upon you, and I will make you witnesses. They just became witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. How encouraging for Peter, how encouraging for the early church, and how potent a witness for these crowds, many of which will come to follow the Lord. It may seem like Peter is being a little harsh with these crowds. Like, you guys, what are you, what are you astonished about? I mean, come on. Like a guy's just jumping walking who had never walked before. But I think that Peter's being loving. Because if he really didn't care about these folks, he just wouldn't waste his time. He'd just walk away. But he wants, to, he wants them to see that it's Jesus who fulfills the promises of a faithful God how what is happening to this man in front of them is part of the larger story of God's promise to rescue them. And and I hope, I hope that by unpacking these verses together, and I know passages like these can be a little laborious, I hope that it, it helps you to see how all of this is connected, how the scriptures are one big story. That's why we typically go verse by verse here, because I think that the greater ability we have to see the Bible as the whole story, the more we can appreciate it, and to see God's ribbon of faithfulness run throughout it. So so if anything, I, I want you to get that. But the point of the whole argument is Peter's call to place our faith in Jesus. Not just what Jesus can do, and not just what he thought When Peter says it's on the basis of faith in his name, the name of Jesus that strengthened this man, he isn't talking about the faith um, that if you command something that healings are going to happen. It's not magic. It doesn't work like that. He's talking about faith in a real person, in the risen and reigning Jesus. This man wasn't just healed through faith in Jesus' name. He was made whole. The term used here is for perfect health. It means wholeness or soundness. It's an aspect of salvation or shalom, which is used all in the scriptures. Faith in Jesus brings not just one-off help. It brings wholeness to our brokenness. It brings soundness to our fractured lives, life to our death and freedom from our captivity to sin. Some of us, most of us, have faith in Jesus for some things in our life, don't we? Maybe we have faith that we'll receive eternal life when we die, and that is a great thing to have faith in. Maybe you have faith that Jesus is the Son of God. Maybe you have faith that He forgives your sin, or that we will rise from the grave. Those are awesome things to have faith in. But this story and Peter's sermon invite us to a much deeper faith than just a few one-off things. Faith that Jesus is with us and for us in every aspect. And I just, I'm asking myself these questions as much as I'm putting it out there to close. But when was the last time you invited Jesus, you trusted him in your finances, or in your relationships, or in your intimacy with God? Just spoken to him as a real living person that he is. Lord, help me. I don't feel close to you. Be honest and have a a conversation. When was the, the last time you invited him into your depression, your anxiety, your sexuality, your lostness, your joy? When was the last time you shared your joy with the Lord? Jesus is the Sunday school answer for a reason. He's the one, the only one, who desires to make us whole and has the actual power to do it. Would you pray with me? We bless you for your servant Peter whom you inspired to speak the truth about the situation, about a miraculous event of a man being restored and healed and brought into community. But also that you, Lord Jesus, are the one who makes that possible. You're the one who makes us whole, not just healed from one or two things. Lord I pray that you would help us you, knowing where each one of us is at the things that we we don't trust you for and we don't invite you into but the power of your spirit would you break down those walls and help us to, to know you more intimately to trust you more fully and maybe the biggest miracle Lord is that you you would overcome our fear You would overcome our fear of of losing control. Oh Lord, bless you for all that you've done for us. Help us now to have the courage to receive it.